Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation, indeed, of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you. We're, we're on this, the last part of the Christmas season. Epiphany is this week, and we have Matthew 2 uh, in front of us this morning. Uh, if you're with us on Christmas Eve, or you would just probably know this anyways, each of the gospel authors uh, tells the story of Jesus with its own emphases. Uh, they bring out different themes, and they're writing to different people to help tell them the story of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for them and their salvation. And so on Christmas Eve, we looked at Luke. And Luke starts off his story about Jesus, and it's all prophecy and song. Hey, this is going to happen. And then someone sings a song about it, and then it happens, and then they might sing another song about it. Uh, that's Luke, Luke verses chapters 1 and 2. Uh, John, his is, let's look at this from the perspective of the Father, from heaven's throne room. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only one sent from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Uh, Mark, well, Mark's not really a baby person, so Mark just starts right in with John the Baptist right away. But what about Matthew? Matthew is interesting because Matthew chapter 1 um, is not a particular scintillating passage of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 1 begins with the genealogy of Jesus. It, it wants to root this story and God's promises and God's people being fulfilled in and through Jesus. So Matthew begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, this royal promise, the son of Abraham, this promise uh, for God's people. And then it lists everyone who was born. This person begat this person, begat this person, begat this person. And it ends, so, so all the generations from Abraham to David, this is how long they waited, were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He's trying to root us in this long, ongoing story of God's work. And he's particularly focused on this baby who's born. But with a unique, unique perspective. Because uh, chapter 1 leaves God's people in Babylon. Now where's Babylon. Babylon is east, and the scriptures east is usually far from God. And so in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fall, they're sent east of Eden. An angel is put with flashing sword. You can't come back in here. You're east. Uh, when, when God brings together his people, where do their enemies come from? The east. Empires that come from the east. When Israel itself is in sin, and rebellion. What happens? They're taken east. East is as far away from God and his people and his promises as you can get. And in the same story, Matthew roots us in that idea before introducing us to three wise men from the east. That's the contrast that's being set up in these first few chapters of Matthew. We're supposed to meet these individuals that are uh, east of Israel and far from Judaism, showing us that when we feel that we are far from God and his promises and his work, well, we're never too far. God is always able to reach us 
And God is always able to draw us to himself. And so we're shown this pretty unorthodox journey of these magi, these wise men. And then we're shown this remarkable encounter as they encounter the Lord Jesus and offer gifts. I just want to kind of uh, go through this section today, um, look at some of these themes, maybe hold some of it up and think about it together um, and see what God would teach us uh, this morning. So first, this unorthodox journey. Here we have this long genealogy, such and such, begot such and such, begot such and such, and then this really short, now the birth of Jesus took place. And immediately we hear, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Uh, wise men, who, who do you think these are? I think most of us immediately go, oh, it's the three kings. Well, that's, yes, we're going to sing that. Don't worry, we're going to sing that at the end of our service. But we probably learned that more from music uh, than from studying the background of this passage. Um, it's more likely these are, these are court royals. Um, they're in the, the court of nobility, and they are dabbling in probably pretty dark and mysterious things. They're magi. Uh, you don't have to know a lot of Greek to figure out that we get magic and magician from magi. Um, when I think of this, I don't know what movies kind of fire your imagination, but I remember when I was a kid, Aladdin came out, the good one. Um, and in the good Aladdin, you had Jafar. And Jafar is this mysterious, powerful, rich musician. Um, he's not the ruler he wants to be, um, but he's just this kind of sidekick of the ruler. You remember that guy? That's, that's what we're encountering here. And there's three of them. And we're told here that uh, they arrive uh, probably from the east, maybe Iraq, Iran, Assyria, Babylon. We don't totally know. Again, the emphasis is just that they were far from God and somehow ended up being drawn by Jesus. And they come into Jerusalem, and I imagine they caused a stir because just like Matthew's really concerned in who's born and in what order they are born, he comes in and says, hey, who was born king of the Jews? And that's an explosive question because there already is a king of the Jews when they arrive in Jerusalem. And just like today, usually you don't have two kings at the same time. You know this, right? You only get one. And so they come in and they're saying, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? And they ask that of one who was named king of the Jews, Herod. There's a difference between being the rightful heir, the rightfully born king, and the puppet pretender who grasped at power, who essentially sold out his own people profited on his old people to say, Rome, if you'll put me in charge, I'll keep things in line. This is like a first century hall monitor. That's Herod here in our passage. And it, it's, it's a little scary because Herod um, is not just kind of a, a, a hall monitor who can't do anything. Uh, he's dangerous in the Bible. He's dangerous in real life. And these guys show up, the Magi, they had somehow looked at the sky and seen a star and combined astrological observation with astrological speculation. I'm not supposed to do that, according to the Bible, but they did it. And they've come to a conclusion and journeyed east to find the one born king of the Jews. And Aladdin shows up and asks the king, hey, where's the rightful king? And Harry gets worried 
Herod starts asking questions. But before we talk about Herod, just think about that. These magi. I mean, how odd. I mean, can you imagine a less likely group of people searching for Jesus than rich, pagan, Gentile magicians? Yet somehow, in, in the folly of their seeking God, God finds them. They were intellectually curious, they're spiritually hungry, and God gets through to them. And he draws them. They think they're on a journey, but God is drawing them step by step on this journey that would change them forever and teach us today. So they go to the palace. That's where you would go, right? Hey, there's a newborn king, must be at the capital. So they arrive. I'm sure they thought there would be rejoicing. You know, I don't know if they had mailboxes in the first century, but like, you know, a blue balloon, baby boy is born, kind of a thing outside the palace. And there's nothing. So they start asking questions. You see, in Jerusalem, those who were wealthy and powerful and religious, they had missed it completely. And so they encounter, again, the infamous Herod, this madman. Uh, part of the 12 days of Christmas, we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Innocents. These are young children that Herod slaughters to hold on to power. Um, it reminds us of when Moses was born. And Pharaoh said, hey, we got to get rid of some of these. Uh, and tradition actually tells us that Herod included his own son in this. A little worried that one of his kids might have been born to take his throne um, that wasn't a one-time thing, by the way. Herod, throughout his life, um, killed his own children. And it just shows the lengths he would go to to hold power, the, the grasp that power had on him, his fear, his paranoia, his greed. Uh, word on the street was it was better to be one of Herod's swine than one of his children. And I'm guessing that swine were not treated well by the named king of the Jews, not very kosher, as you know. Uh, it is worth knowing that, that this man, this kind of madman, um, he was remarkably gifted. Um, he was actually remarkably gifted as a businessman and as a project developer, as a, as a construction uh, overseer. He, he had these architectural marvels, these lavish projects and towers that he would build. Um, if you go to Israel today, you're going to tour a lot of sites that are ancient and they're still standing uh, most of the ones that are still standing, Herod built or commissioned. He was a master builder. Uh, when I visited Israel years ago, our guide was just trying to get us to understand, like Herod's a big deal. Like he just appears a little bit in the scripture. He's like, no, 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 this guy ran the ancient world in the first century in the Near East, especially in Jerusalem. He, he said, think of this kind of like Saddam Hussein. Um, if you're a college student, that's a guy from a while ago. <laughs> But Saddam Hussein, he's this ruler. Um, he's not, you know, he's narcissistic. He's insecure. He's cruel. He's violent. But he built stuff and did stuff. And that's why Rome liked him. He could get things done. He understood the ways of this world. And that's part of the clash, the collision that just should be flying in our imaginations as we look at this. It's interesting. Herod hears about what's going on, and he's a resourceful guy. So he said, hey, this seems like maybe a religious question. Let's get the religious experts in. He goes, hey, hey what's going on here? Where, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? 
And they said, well, Micah 5, it's really clear. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Uh, we know where this is going to happen. You see that? They, they know their Bible. They know where to look. But they miss Jesus. I don't know. I was challenged by that this week. Um, and I don't know, as you read this, you know, it, I think we can identify with different characters in this, this passage. Um, you know, maybe you, you're kind of like the Magi. You're just this far out pagan. God bless you if you're somehow here today or watching online. Um, and God's drawing you in some unorthodox ways to himself. But I think most of us, if we're gathering in a church for Sunday worship, we have a lot in common with these religious leaders. We have the right book. We have the right answers. But do we see and notice when God shows up and works all around us? Um, and that's not to say there was anything actually wrong with their book or their answers. Don't mishear me on that. <laughs> the problem was that for them, somehow it had all become theoretical. That's what I think. That they knew about the promises of God, but they've been waiting so long, did they expect them to ever be fulfilled? Would it ever finally come true? They knew God had worked in the past, but man, they looked around and Rome's in charge and this joker Herod's on the throne. That seems like maybe God's retired or taking a sabbatical or leave of absence, something. He doesn't seem to be at work in the way they would have expected all around them. And again, I'm not trying to be hard on them. I mean, how often do we miss what God's doing around us or within us or, or in our families or communities? And then that's set in contrast with Three Jafars, maybe on camels, who saw something crazy in the sky and had enough wealth and means and leisure to come to Jerusalem to figure out what it was all about. There's a similar story from the New Testament. It hammers this home on how those who seem like they shouldn't be understanding the things of God seem to get it. While those who it feels like they should get it miss out on what God's doing. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably know this parable. Uh, there's a person journeying along, and they're, they're jumped on the road, they're ambushed, they're beaten, they're left for dead. And so we see kind of these three different folks come by, and we're supposed to learn from this. So first, a priest comes by. And you're like, all right, cool. This guy's in need, here's a priest. Nope, keeps going. Doesn't have time for that. Guy might be dead. We don't want to get our hands dirty or unclean. And especially if he's on his way to the temple, like that's a real concern for him. All right, here comes a scribe. The scribes are who Herod had in his, uh, at his beck and call. Maybe the scribes will stop. They come up, nope, cross to the other side of the path, keep going. No, it's the Samaritan. Samaritans were these kind of, you know, sketchy. <laughs> They're sketchy theologically. <laughs> They're kind of religious half-breeds is what they would say. Um, and the Samaritan stops. He sees this person as, a, as someone made in the image of God. He just has human decency, and he cares for this wounded person. Um, and again, that reminds me of this passage. And it's not that God's saying it's good to be on the outside looking in. He, he's writing stories like this. We have the parable. We have the magi to say, hey, if you're in, are you paying attention? Are you noticing? It's a challenge to go, if outsiders get it, how much more should God's people realize what's happening and how and when God is at work, uh, how he's fulfilling his promises. And so Herod tells them, he's pumping them for information. They figure out, okay, Bethlehem. He goes, okay, go to Bethlehem 
Go and search diligently for the child. Um, actually, I like the irony of this because it's one of the best sermons in the whole New Testament from Herod. Go and search diligently for the child. Could you think of a better way to sum up the Christmas and Epiphany season? Go, search diligently for the child. In prayer, in scripture, in song, in community, go and search diligently for the child. See how God is at work all around you. It's, it's very interesting. Now, Herod, of course, is doing this for the wrong reasons. He wants to, you know, end the competition. But at this crossroads in the story in our own lives, go and search diligently for the child. And when you do, you're going to figure out that you haven't had this great idea on your own, but that God has been drawing you and calling you and is ready to meet you and to reveal himself to you. And we have these epiphanies. Their epiphany, they go, ah, oh, this is who Jesus is. The epiphanies we encounter in and every day. They follow this star, whatever they saw, to a simple home. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Sounds like the shepherds in Luke 2, right? Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Um, we could probably do a whole sermon on this, just the gifts they offer. Um, but their response is fascinating. Uh, worship combined with tribute. Generosity to the king. And, and these gifts... Um, somehow in God's wisdom and humor and grace, well, they're important. They, they, they're symbolic. They speak to uh, the royalty of Jesus, uh, the priesthood of Jesus. They even foretell his death right here in Matthew 2. Um, this is actually the best part of We Three Kings, the song that we all know, is they actually kind of teach us this. Um, one of the lines, born a king on Bethlehem playing, gold I bring to crown him again. His royalty, right there from one of the magi. That frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. This priestly dimension, this incense. Uh, myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume. Breathes a life of gathering gloom. Myrrh, the spice used uh, not as like a housewarming thing, but spice is used to embalm. Um, it foretells Jesus' death, and then indeed when he dies on the cross, uh, they come with spices, probably myrrh, to the tomb, thinking that they would finally put these to use. Maybe it's even some of these, I don't know. As our passage wraps up, verse 12, God intervenes. He makes sure that the Magi uh, return home by another route. They bypass Herod and his treacherous intentions. Um, and don't miss this. Part of what's happening is that they are, are the first fruits of the nations coming to worship Jesus. They're the first fruits of the Gentiles being welcomed into the kingdom, welcomed into the people of God as they come. Uh, they're symbolic. They're, they're the first fruits saying Jesus was born king of the Jews, but came as king of the whole world. Whether you're near or whether you're far, Jesus calls you to himself and you can be part of his people. Um, and it just reminds us that in the entire Old Testament, that was always God's intention and mission. That the nations would, would flood in and come to worship him rightly. Uh, all the way back in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, uh, before he changes his name to Abraham, 
It says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, it, it's first to Israel, then to the nations. That's the pattern we see in the scriptures. And that's part of what we celebrate during the epiphany season coming up. God's mission to the world, how he brings uh, different tribes and tongues and ethnicities and peoples, how he delights in that diversity. Uh, and how that even, for, it really gives us a picture of what eternity will be like. That kind of gathered worship. Um, God, I actually think Galatians 3 is a commentary on how all of this has been fulfilled in, by, and through Jesus. Matthew starts, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. All the promises to Abraham, all the promises to David find their yes in Jesus. For us and for our salvation, even for pagan magicians <laughs> like these magi. You're, you're never too far gone. Um, and, and they remind us that now God's doing something new bringing his justice and peace to the whole world. That God's heart is for all to come to him and that no one is too far gone or too far east to be welcomed home. I find that comforting. Uh, that tells me that I'm not too far gone, <laughs> that you're not too far gone, that if, if rich pagan magicians could start their journey to Jesus following a star, no one's unreachable. Not that family member that you prayed for day after day, year after year. Not that coworker that infuriates you. Maybe that neighbor you despise. Maybe that person you got in an argument with last week. The Christmas season can be confrontational, can't it? <laughs> Filled with conflict when we would wish it otherwise. God is there and he welcomes them and he draws them in. All right, just in, as we close, I just want to ask you some questions. I asked earlier, where do you see yourself in this story? I think that's a, maybe a good way that we can see what to take away from our look at Matthew 2. Um, it's actually a good way a lot of times when you're reading these stories in the Gospels to see, hey, where am I in this? Am I, am I near? Am I far? Like, where, where do I fit? Um, I do know if you're looking at that, asking the question first, you're not Jesus, we know that, right? <laughs> Usually when we read these passages, we're, we're not called to be the Savior. Um, we might be called to imitate him by the Spirit and by God's grace, but we're not Jesus in the passage. Uh, maybe you feel like King Herod. I know that sounds a little out there because Herod's not a great guy, but I don't know, firmly entrenched on the throne of your own life. Can't you empathize with Herod who's lost in his own power and success? He's paranoid to let anyone know how fragile it all seems. Man, what it cost him to get where he is and what he'll do to hold on to it. Clinging to the ways of this world with tenacity and desperation. I think we all have a little bit of Herod in us when it comes to that. We want to be in control. We want to remain in control. And the gracious invitation to us is to, to yield, to abdicate the throne of, of our lives and invite King Jesus to rule, to go from the captain of our own ship to humble followers, which is, I get it's costly and it's hard, but you gain peace and joy, forgiveness and rest when you do that. Most of us, I would imagine, we, we kind of feel like the scribes, these religious people, 
the ones with the right answers and the right book who just don't always know what God's doing in the world. And don't mishear me again. The problem wasn't that they had right answers or that they had the right book, but that God was just, I don't know, a hero of history. They thought maybe he had retired. He, he used to do stuff. Now we don't know if he does. And so they're not attentive to the person and presence and work of God. They're not responsive to it. God was a good theory rather than their great savior. I'll say if that's you this morning, I would kindly invite you to pray for God the Holy Spirit to give you fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear what God, our living God, is doing. Actually, it's the new year. We could probably all stand to pray that. Lord, would you give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear and probably new hands to do the work that you have given us to do and that you're doing all around us? Would you help us pay attention? Or again, you may feel kind of like the Magi, like, man, I'm not a religious person. I don't know how I got drugged here today or saw this video online. I don't know. But <laughs> if you follow your unorthodox journey and God draws you, well, you're going to see the greatest glory the world has ever known, the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what these magi encounter, right? That's their, their moment. That's their experience. But then what happens? What comes next for the magi? Well, what comes next is what we would think of as transformation. Uh, God conforming them to the image of his son. I've often thought, this is just, preachers have imaginations this way. You'll have to indulge me a little bit. I've always thought, man, what if those scribes who had the right answer in the right book but forgot God was still at work in the world could sit down with the magi who didn't have the right answers, didn't have the book, but man, they were paying attention to God. I bet they could mutually benefit one another. Because those scribes could say, hey, <laughs> uh, you have this newfound joy and excitement. Let's help show you what, what God's path looks like. And those magi would say, man, you've got all the stuff, but you forgot what it's about. And maybe our newfound joy and excitement, you could actually just be reminded of the joy of your salvation, of what it was like when it was fresh and new and what God could still be doing in your life? What if they just got together and had a little coffee party? I bet they could benefit one another just to see through the newfound joy and astonishment of the Magi. Again, I don't know which of these resonates with you. Maybe all of them, maybe none of them, maybe a combo. Uh, but I know that we each need uh, this kind of an epiphany moment. We each need to, uh, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Um, we're blessed to be drawn by this one full of grace and truth. Um, and, and then when we come, we come and like the Magi, we adore. And we open our hands with generosity and tribute. And, and then like the Magi, then God sends us off to do the work he's given us to do. Part of God's mission to all the world is this epiphany idea of bringing the nations in and watching what God will do. I'll finish Bishop N.T. Wright summarizes this entire passage. He just puts a bow on it. He says, think about what it meant and what it means for Jesus to be the true king. And then come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.